Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find having a guest speaker at church a little bit off-putting because I feel like, what, what exactly is this guy's investment in our church? What does he actually care? Uh, and what, what does his opinion really matter? I'm hopeful that you guys aren't as cynical as that, but in case you are, uh, I want to speak to that briefly because not only am I a face that you haven't seen up here before, but also you, you guys are a church in transition, right? You're looking for a pastor. Uh, I know that a number of you have come from Mount Stuart Presbyterian. Um, and you're looking at this book of Revelation and especially trying to get insights into what kind of church you should be. And so it's a bit strange then that this brethren guy who doesn't give a lick about uh, Presbyterianism is here giving his opinion. Uh, so two things on that. Firstly, uh, my opinion really doesn't matter. Okay, I'm under no illusions about that. But then again, in an ultimate sense, neither does the opinion of anyone else who has shared this lectern during this sermon series. Um, with all of his degrees, it doesn't really matter what Michael Gazzoni thinks about the church. Um, for all of his esteem uh, and the, the, you know, 150 churches he's planted, it doesn't actually matter what David Jones thinks. Um, it definitely doesn't matter what Paul Matthews thinks. Uh, <laughs> What we really want to see here is what Christ thinks, right? And guest speaker or not guest speaker, credentialed or otherwise, uh, we just want to see the text. We want to know what does Christ want for his church, especially in this transitional time. But then secondly, I also want to underline the fact that I actually do care about this church. Uh, It's been kind of a one-way relationship, I understand, over these years. But I first came to church, uh, to Soul Church, about 12 years ago when you were meeting in the cupping room. Um, Just show of hands, who was there during those days? Okay, still still a handful, the remnant chosen by grace. from those days. Yeah, I, I remember going along and hearing Campbell Markham preach and getting the hot chocolates out the front, and it was a wonderful thing. I came then a couple of years later for a block of about two months when a friend of mine became a Christian. He was looking for a church and he wanted me to come and scope it out with him. And you guys embraced him and he loved it here. Um, over the years, I've seen friends become Christians here. I've seen, sadly, some friends lose their faith here. I've seen friends baptized here and friends' kids baptized here. Uh, I've not seen yet a a pastor installed here, but I was in the service when a pastor was fired here. So I've I've sort of been amongst it and have been praying for you over those years. So for whatever it's worth, my opinion doesn't matter, but I do care. So um, that's why I'm here tonight. Now, that's a brief introduction to me. And now I'm going to attempt to give you an introduction to yourselves. Um, So it occurs to me there are going to be eight sermons on Revelation, right, on Christ and what he wants for his church. And it's very possible that you could sit here through each of these sermons and not take in a single word, not hear a single word. And the reason I say that is because the refrain that runs through each of these letters is that one right at the end, verse 29 of our reading, he who has an ear, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is concerned that there will be some who will not hear a thing that he says. And depending on what your personality is, that may be for one of two reasons. These are reasons, actually, that um, Paul draws out in in Romans 2. Some of you are self-justified. And when you hear the word, um, you look within and you kind of examine your life and you think, well, yeah, I, I know I'm a sinner technically, and by confession I'll say I'm a sinner. But actually, there are just a few little things maybe I need to tune up. 
most of the sins that I commit are not really my fault. And if I think about them carefully, they're actually not that bad. Uh, And so you won't hear what group are actually self-condemned. And you hear the word and you look within and all you see is sin and hypocrisy and inconsistency and the many, many ways you don't measure up. And you think, I'm, I'm so flawed on such a fundamental level that then when I hear about Christ's word to his churches, and these are some hard words, right? Christ's word to his churches. I actually, there's no way I can live up to that, so why bother? You almost block it out as a defence mechanism. Now, they may sound like opposite problems, right, being self-justified or being self-condemned, but actually they're both the exact same problem. The problem is simply this, that you are listening to your own voice. You're not listening to the voice of Christ. That's the problem. Uh, There is uh, introspection, this kind of searching of yourself, this kind of examination. This is something that can kind of be elevated to the level of Christian virtue, you know, this kind of soul-searching, deep melancholy, I'm so aware of my own sins. And there are verses about it in Scripture, right? Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Before we take communion, we're to examine ourselves. He says in Romans 12 that we should uh, think of ourselves with right judgment, It's a helpful diagnostic tool, right? You don't want to be a self-deceived person. You want to be aware basically of what's going on inside of you. The problem is that introspection is actually useless for what we often use it for. We often try and use introspection, this kind of searching ourselves, for moral transformation, to change ourselves. Either we look inside of ourselves and we try and self-justify, okay, my sins are actually not that bad under these circumstances, etc., Or we look inside of ourselves and we try to self-sanctify. Okay, yes, I did that thing wrong in the past, but in the future I'm going to be better. And maybe if I look inside myself and see the reasons I do the things I do, I can change myself. Actually, the scripture holds out absolutely no hope for introspection, for moral transformation. It actually suggests the exact opposite, what you might call extrospection. I was very hopeful that I'd coined that term, uh, but I Googled it and it's in some psychological literature, so I can claim no credit there. But extrospection, looking outside of yourself, looking outside of yourself to Christ for justification and then calling on Christ who is outside of yourself, this foreign power, to change you for sanctification. And that kind of command is all over the scriptures, right? You think about Colossians Three, before Paul goes to give some specific commands to the Colossians, he says, firstly, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Or in Hebrews 12, how do we run the race with endurance? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Or that great passage in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says, we all with unveiled face, beholding not our sin, Beholding not ourselves at all, but beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When um, David wants to become more holy, he doesn't search himself, but he says rather in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. All that to say, if we want any chance of changing, right, if we want any hope of becoming the people we know we need to be to become more like Christ, we have to hear the voice of the living Christ. 
like David drew out in his first sermon, that strange phrase that we greet in Revelation 1 when John meets Jesus, it says he turned to face the voice. We need to do that with him, right? We need to turn away from our own voice, whether it's self-justifying or self-condemning, and we need to face the voice of Christ. So let's get a good look at Christ. Have a look at verse 18 there of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. David also mentioned in his first sermon that the key to understanding the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. And that's especially true of uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel finds its way into Revelation a lot. It's the same kind of literature. We get two allusions to the book of Daniel here. Firstly, that uh, phrase that Christ has eyes like flaming fire and feet like burnished bronze, that's taken directly from Daniel chapter 10, in which Daniel meets this kind of heavenly warrior. And he describes him like this. He says, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like a sound of a multitude. Eyes like flaming torches and arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. Uh, The eyes are meant to communicate the fact that Jesus actually sees everything and knows everything. To our point earlier, he sees past our self-justification. He sees past our self-condemnation. Whatever it is that our self is saying, Jesus doesn't care about that. He is seeing uh, the true heart and he is judging what he sees by fire. Uh, We get a picture uh, in one of the other letters here that Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands, that he's actually intimately aware of what is going on in each of his churches. In each of these letters as well, the phrase is repeated, I know your works. And here specifically uh, in this letter in verse 23, he says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each of you according to your works. The feet then, the feet of bronze, feet, uh, the word feet is used nine times in Revelation and overwhelmingly that refers to dominion, putting things under your feet. And so Christ then, putting these pictures together, Christ is this powerful warrior who sees all, who judges what he sees and who defeats his enemies. But then there's a second allusion to Daniel here and that is that phrase, son of God, seems kind of innocuous, the son of God. But again, this is only used once in Revelation. And it's also, you'll remember the story well, King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, sets up a, uh, a golden image and he uh, commands everyone to bow down to it. And Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, refuse to bow. And the penalty is that they are thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. And you remember that great phrase that uh, Nebuchadnezzar utters. He turns to one of his attendants. And he says, now I thought that we threw uh, three men bound into the fire, but what I see is actually four men walking around freely. And he says, the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And so that's the reference that we have here. And that's an interesting picture then that we get of this Christ, so that Christ is not just this powerful warrior who will judge by fire, but he's also the faithful son of God who walks with his children through the fires of human persecution. Which means, just by the way, whenever you suffer for the name of Christ, 
you are not suffering alone. And that picture of Christ will then have bearing on what he's going to say to this church in Thyatira. So firstly, what Christ commends, verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, on the surface, this um, list of commendations can seem kind of mundane, right? These are very generic terms for Christians. Love, faith, patient, endurance, great. Now let's get on to the stuff that Jesus doesn't like about this church. Um, And yet, this is quite profound. There, There are no great acts of heroism here. Jesus doesn't say, you turned Thyatira upside down with your teaching, you know, none of these buzzwords, you renewed the culture. Just love, faith, and patient endurance. But I want to suggest to you that they are far more significant things than any uh, once-off act of zeal. I think we can all summon the courage a couple of times in our lives to do something crazy for Jesus, right? Some of you have these things in your past, and they're quite embarrassing to you, the time that you gave away all your money and then you needed to ask a friend for a lift to church or something, you know, these kinds of things. But what's much harder is actually genuine Christian love, isn't it? Those of you who have been Christians for a long time, isn't it difficult to continually have this genuine affection for the people that God has put in front of you in the home or in the church or at work or in the world? It's difficult to continue to put your needs aside for the good of others without resentment. It's difficult uh, to actually weep with those who weep. Sometimes it's even harder to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? These are difficult things. Or genuine Christian faith, that's a difficult thing, isn't it? To trust Jesus from the moment that you wake up until the moment you sleep, through childhood, if you're a Christian then, all the way through those awkward teenage years, into the complexities of marriage and family, or into lifelong singleness and the challenges that that brings. And then into the old years, which, you know, your body is giving up on you and and uh, things are no longer working properly, to continue to trust Jesus. Now, not only were the church in Thyatira doing this, love and faith, but they were also doing these things with patient endurance. That means they were doing them when no one understood. They were doing them when they were actually being persecuted for these things. They were loving and they were faithful when the relational and the reputational cost was high, when their friends didn't understand, like our friend Paul, whose family did not understand when he became a Christian, they were still showing love and faith. They were showing love when the world thought their love was hate. And they were uh, showing faith when the world saw their faith as fanaticism. These things, love, faith and patient endurance, they're not just difficult, you see. They're actually impossible. They're impossible, and that's why they prove your connection to Christ, because only someone who is in Christ can show these virtues through their lives. What does Paul say in Galatians 5, 6? He says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. These are crucial things for us as Christians. Then the next phrase um, is one that grabs you. He says that your latter works exceed the first. Now, again, this can seem kind of mundane. Jesus is saying that the trend line of your life is basically kind of vaguely up. Okay, you're just kind of better at the end than you were at the beginning. But again, this is quite a radical thing because outside of Jesus, 
the trend line of your life in terms of good deeds is down. What I mean is that we all uh, have a good category for a young, zealous person, right? We get them in the church, people who come in here and they want to change everything and they want to save the world. But we also have a category for a young, zealous person out there in the world, don't we? In the Greens Party or marching for climate change or they're all over Facebook, right? Young, zealous people are a dime a dozen. But as you get older, that zeal slowly gets stifled, right? Those of you who are, I mean, it doesn't even take that long, right? I've just turned 30, okay? And I, I see it happening. Your zeal gets stifled. These young guys who wanted to change the world, you actually see some of them get changed by the world and renounce their faith. You see some of them leave their wives and their family. Or maybe you just start to become a little bit cynical about the church and you think, does any of this actually really work? Or perhaps you just ease into comfortable patterns. And as you have more of a family, you start to become a bit more insular and think less about the outside world. Or as you get more money uh, and you're no longer sort of restricted to the $5 menu at at Domino's, um, all of a sudden, actually, that, that money doesn't become an opportunity for generosity. Actually, you just diversify your investments. Um, You have a a bigger portfolio. You have a larger nest egg. This is what happens with age very naturally. And so if you're not careful, as you get older, you will risk less. You will sacrifice less. You will play it safer. You will hoard more. What is a complete category error in the world is an old, zealous person. Don't you love to see them? Don't you love to see them in the church? I understand that you have some of them in this church. An old, zealous person who, as they get more of a family, they actually have more more people there, more warriors to serve in the cause. Or as they make more money, they're actually far more generous with what they have. As they have less. So let me ask you this question, Soul Church. Do your latter works exceed the first? Is there more going on here than there was 12 years ago in the cupping room? Or in your personal life, are you sharing the good news more than you used to? Are you more generous than you used to be? Are you more hospitable in your home with your family and your kids than you were in your share house? Are you praying more? Are you you more likely to get out of your comfort zone and greet someone after church than you used to? Christians shouldn't talk too much about the good old days. And especially for those of you who, like me, are just starting to have kids, this is something that's just been on my mind, that I don't want my kids growing up in a context where I'm just talking about what I used to do for Christ, you know, the times that I used to be zealous. This is what Dad used to do when I was in university and sharing a bunk bed with Paul Matthews and driving a church into the ground in Glenorchy. Um, you know, I don't want to talk about those good old days. Actually, I want them to grow up living the good days. You don't want to talk about the good old days when Presbyterianism was exploding and David was planting another church every other week. What you want to do is, like the Apostle Paul, you want to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. So are your latter works exceeding the first? That's the good. Now Jesus also sees a problem in the church, and that is heresy. Have a look at verse 20 there. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I'll strike her dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So there was this prophet in the church in Thyatira, and Jesus nicknames her Jezebel after the uh, wife of Ahab in the Old Testament who led the people of Israel into sexual immorality and into idolatry. Those two things are going on here as well. She was leading them into sexual immorality, which is um, interesting because it underscores the fact that the main narrative about the Christian sexual ethic in the world is absolutely wrong, right? You hear it often repeated that Christianity almost kind of enshrined the sexual ethic at the time and now it's old and it's outdated and it needs to be dragged kicking and screaming into the modern era. That's not true at all. Christianity was birthed into a far more progressive and permissive sexual environment than we have today. People would blush at what was going on in Greece and in Rome at the time. And from day one, there were voices, not just outside of the church, but inside the church, pressuring the church to sanction these deviant sexualities. And from day one, the church said no. And so this battle that we're fighting today is no new battle. It's been fought by faithful Christians since the beginning. She was also teaching the Thyatirans to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, if you're an astute reader of the Bible, you might think at this point, is there a bit of a contradiction here? Because I thought that uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it's actually kind of okay if you eat food sacrificed to idols. Actually, Paul makes a, a sort of nuanced case there. He says, look, if someone lays some food down in front of you, don't ask questions. If you go to Little India and they give you some curry, don't ask what happened, right? But if they put it down and they say, this was um, blessed by the goddess or this was sacrificed to the goddess, then you've got a bit of an issue. You don't want to participate in demonic activity and you don't want other people to join in what you're doing against their conscience. So that's his nuanced case. But what we have here in Thyatira is a completely different context. Uh, Gazzoni, Michael Gazzoni, I could call him Gazzoni, that's not very professional, is it? Dr Gazzoni uh, <laughs> shared with you last week about the trade guilds um, back in the day. And uh, Thyatira was at the city at this time with the most trade and what would happen is if you joined one of these guilds, you had a kind of legitimacy. It meant that you could work. It was kind of like a registration. Um, but the problem for Christians was that these trade guilds would have these meetings. And in the meetings, the food would be sacrificed to a false god. They would say a prayer at the beginning in the name of a false god. Um, then most of the people would get drunk. And then the whole thing would descend into orgies. So that's basically what happened at these meetings. And in that context, you realise then that Jezebel is not making some kind of argument about, you know, eat food sacrificed to idols because it tastes better or something. She's saying, actually, she's making a, a subtle economic argument. Okay, uh, you guys need to make a list. And she may have even been twisting the Apostle Paul's recommendations and saying, look, actually, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, an idol is nothing, so don't worry about it. And in that context, you realise that even though food sacrifice to idols is not much of an issue um, anymore, um, that this kind of workplace pressure 
to compromise. This kind of economic pressure to compromise is still very much alive and well, isn't it? A friend of my sister's worked at a local accounting firm and she was pressured to wear a purple for Pride Month. Or maybe in your context, you've you got to use the right pronouns for certain people. Or perhaps it's something a little bit subtler. Maybe you're in sales and in sales, you just have to fudge things a little bit. You just have to lie a little bit to get away with things. What we need to do if we want to please Christ is we need to resolve whatever profession we're in that we are very willing to lose our job any given day that we walk into the office. Right? We're in or we're not going to carry it out at all if we want to please Christ. So some were falling for this heresy of Jezebel's, but the main thing that Jesus actually has against the church as a whole here is that they were tolerating the heresy. You see that in verse 20. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, tolerance, it's been said, ad nauseum is a kind of absolute um, virtue in our culture, right? It's good to tolerate. And even in the church, we can elevate this to a level of virtue that I can handle someone's beliefs that are different to mine. That's a good thing. Biblically, it entirely depends on what you're tolerating. So uh, in have forgiven our debtors. And that word forgive is the same word that's here rendered tolerate. So the church must tolerate sinners, right? We have to tolerate sinners because this is the place where sinners meet their saviour. But now in this context, the church must be completely intolerant of heresy. And the reason is because uh, heresy is what separates sinners from their saviour. So what does intolerance look like? If these guys were in trouble because they were tolerating heresy, what would intolerance look like for us? Well, at the church level, it would look like church discipline, right? Active church discipline. And as you guys look for a pastor, maybe you want to look for the kind of guy who has the backbone, not just to preach the word, but also to discipline the church. On the level of personal relationships, it looks like exercising those muscles of admonishment and rebuke. We're very good in the church at encouraging one another, and that's a wonderful biblical thing. But we're also called to admonish one another, to rebuke one another. And it can be a powerful thing. I remember I was um, trailing off into some kind of strange theological landscape, reading some weird books, getting some bad podcasts, not like the kind that Paul was recommending. Um, I was going down a weird trail theologically, and I was driving in the car with Paul Matthews, and, um, and I was spouting off about all this stuff and talking about how the church needs to grow up and change this, that, whatever. And he just turned to me and he said, Jordan, you are so full of crap. And it just lingered with me. And I, you know, I thought for a couple of seconds, it was slightly jarring, almost ran off the road. And then um, I thought, you know what, I kind of am, <laughs> you know. And it was actually a really healthy thing just to be stopped in my tracks. We need to work out those kinds of muscles. On the individual level then, it means keeping watch over your ears and eyes. If you want to be intolerant of heresy, you need to take our friend Paul's counsel about what kind of podcast to listen to and not just listen to everything, right? We can be so um, impressionable. We don't think we're very impressionable, but then you spend time around a certain friend for a while and everyone says you start to talk like them, right? We, we are very, very impressionable people. And so you might think you have a really strong mind and you can listen to whatever podcast you want to and you can read whatever book you want to, but actually after a while you'll start to believe what you're reading. 
Now, what's especially popular in the heresy context at the moment is something that uh, Paul Matthews mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I just want to touch on again. It's this movement of deconstruction within the church, right? Have we heard of this? Have we seen, we've seen celebrity Christians deconstruct their faith? What it basically says is that it's a sign of spiritual health to demolish the faith that you inherited, either from your family or from your church or from your community, and to then rebuild a faith brick by brick in your own image that's authentic to you. And uh, like Jezebel, there are, many, uh, there are many teachers in this space who not only teach you but also seduce you. And in the process, they will undermine all sources of authority, your church, your family, even the scriptures. The problem is that there are great teachers in this space, right? They're brilliant. The reason that they're brilliant is because conservative Bible teachers, all they have to do is convince you of what's in the text. But these teachers have to convince you of something that's completely outside of the text. That means they have to be brilliant. They have to be great communicators. They appeal to the flesh. And in this deconstruction sort of realm, the appeal is basically that you can retain your intellectual uh, reputation you can be a wise and learned and worldly person and also be a Christian because you don't have to worry about that weird stuff about the giants in the Old Testament, you know, or people living to 900 years or, you know, the creation or any of these kinds of things. You can just believe the bits that actually make scientific modern sense. Now, uh, someone has said uh, very helpfully that every new teaching is an old heresy. And that's very much true of deconstruction. It's as ancient as the serpent in the garden who said, did God really say? This is a heresy, like all heresies, that tells you two lies. The first lie that it tells you is that you can be the judge, right? You can pick the things that you like about Jesus and the things that you don't like, and then Jesus is just there to rubber stamp it and affirm it because it's true to you. But we learn here, of course, that it's the exact opposite. Jesus is the judge. Look at these vivid terms he uses in verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, lest they repent, and I will strike her children dead. Christ reserves the right to judge us both now and in eternity. The second lie it tells you is that you can't repent, and this is such a sad one. I've spoken to a number of friends now who have deconstructed their faith, either to some kind of liberalism or all the way out of the faith. And so often they say something like, I just wish I hadn't listened to this podcast. I wish I hadn't listened to this guy talk. I wish I hadn't read this book. Or I wish I hadn't taken philosophy at university because it led me off the rails. And it's this kind of belief that deconstruction is a one-way track, that you can't come back, that once you lay down that old fundamentalistic religion, there's no way you can go back to it. But that's complete rubbish as well. Don't you see here that Jesus punctuates these uh, promises of judgment with calls to repentance and how merciful he is. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Even this woman Jezebel, who is wantonly leading these people astray, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'll throw into a, onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. So, are you tolerating heresy, either in your church or in the friends around you that you're seeing sort of decline? person you haven't seen in church for a while or 
who you really need to call? Are you tolerating heresy because you haven't confronted them? Or have you actually been led astray by Jezebel herself? Have you fallen into some kind of sexual immorality, whether it's in the precincts of your own mind or your own home, or whether it's um, an adulterous affair? Have you fallen into some kind of adultery, some kind of sexual immorality? Or have you compromised at work? Have you sort of kept your head underneath? Or are you just doing things at work that you just go, these are practices that we do in the sales world, in the real estate world, in the teaching world, whatever, but actually they're not godly? Or perhaps you're here tonight and you've lived your entire life in rebellion against Christ and his word and you've never cared and you've been completely ignorant of him. There is bad news for you tonight. The bad news is that Christ is the judge. And whatever uh, method of self-justification you have in your mind, it doesn't matter. Christ sees through all of it. But there is good news, and that is that you can repent. If you're here tonight and you think, I've gone too far, or you think, I've believed such strange things, I've gone down this sort of track and I can't get back, don't believe that lie anymore. Here's the truth. You can be right with God before you leave your seat tonight. You can be right with God, your maker, your judge, before you leave your seat tonight. I can't promise you that the cleanup on the other end won't be messy. If you repent of something and you need to go in and maybe you lose your job or maybe your relationship is slightly compromised when you confess some sin, cleanup might be messy. But even then, You will find God in that process, no longer to be your judge standing opposed to you, but you will find God to be your father propelling you from behind and seeing you through that path of sanctification. And if all of this is weighty, and it is, Christ then tells us to look to the promise. Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Startlingly, in this passage, a messianic psalm is applied to us. Psalm 2 that was prophesying the Messiah and what he would do is now spoken over the church. And that's a profound expression of the union that we have with Christ, like John was praying before, that we're Christ's bride, that we're his body. Uh, The Puritans actually had a great handle on this. And they called Christ, uh, who is in heaven, they called him Christ the head. And the church, they called Christ mystical, because that is how unified and how united we are with Christ, that we are spoken of as his actual body. And therefore, whatever he has by right, he shares with us by grace. And all that we have, we have only by virtue of being in him. And here we are told that if we share his suffering, if we endure like Christ endured, we will also reign with him. One day, this Jesus that we saw at the beginning was this conquering warrior, was this judge of all the earth. One day he will be revealed as such and it will be clear to all the world. And Jesus' promise is that if you overcome, then you also will be with him on that day reigning. And better still, 
you will receive the morning star, which chapter 22 of Revelation tells us is Christ himself. That the one from whom all light and goodness come, the one in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, the one who will illuminate the new creation so that there will be no need for a son, that one, that Christ, will be yours. So, soul church, hang on to love and faith, remain pure, shun heresy in all its forms, overcome, and when he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.